Sequel Cast 2 and Friends is a part of the HyperX Podcast Network. Do you, Frederick Aloysius Polowatsky, solemnly swear to stand together with your fellow brethren with dignity and compassion, to respect all those who pass through these doors, and to uphold all the values that we hold dear to the tri I do. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the bitter end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts are vast that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. Now we're looking at uh, our continued look at the Nerd series with Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise, released in 1987, written by Dan Gunselman and Steve Marshall, directed by Joe Roth. With me is Thrasher. When I said bite my crank in Seminole, no one responded. And Alex. I'm a hip rapping nerd. You better hear me. I rap about math things like Fibonacci. That's right. And um, yeah, Revenge of the Nerds came out. You know, this sequel came out three years after the original. Uh, I guess we can start talking about when we first watched it, or even I before that maybe the poster because we were complaining about that before we started recording. This poster <laughs> shows. The nerds that are in this movie, you see a big wave. You, you see a shark in the background, actually. Uh, and a, a woman in the corner with a cartoon bubble saying, they're back. Uh, of course, in a trailer uh, for this, you have uh, Robert Carradine as as Gilbert, the main nerd, saying, we're back. And that's meant to be a take on the trailer for Poltergeist 2, the other side. Ah. This... This cover, this or this poster looks like the cover for a cheaply produced paperback novelization of this movie. Yes, it does. It does, and I'm not sure if it had a novelization, but it very well could have, given, you know, at this you time. You never know. You never know. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, what I call Atari game uh, syndrome, where, like, the art <laughs> of the cartridge is infinitely cooler. You know, like, you get something like Vanguard, and you get this, like, cavernous, like, alien cave with this, like, yes, really yes. detailed ship, and then you're a fucking triangle blasting squares. Um, yeah. This would indicate that there's, um, you know, uh, sharks, that this chick has been in the first movie and knows them well enough to know that they are back. Um, I would I would glean maybe some surfing going on. Um, but, yes, there's none of that in the movie. Right, I mean, um, speaking of, of stuff from the first movie, the original, I was reading uh, more of the biography of Curtis Armstrong, the actor that plays Booger in these movies, and he mentioned that the original script for this uh, featured the, um, was, was the character's name Betty, I think, from the first film, the romantic interest? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Betty uh, was, was going to be, um, Lewis was uh, trying to find Betty, and uh, he, he catches her having sex with a jock, and he's so distraught that um, he decides to go and 
send the the crew down to Florida. But the actors that played Betty said my character wouldn't do that. The whole big thing at the end of the first movie was that she kind of uh, embraced her inner nerd, so to speak. And um, so I'm not going to do this movie. But she did give permission for them to use her likeness for a picture that you see in there. Oh, okay, yeah. I, Which is, I am, I am glad she held on to the fidelity of her character. Yeah, yeah, You're right. Because that would have felt really cheap and kind of undone everything in that first movie. Not that it was a hero's journey or anything, but it was. Right. Well, there were well, it, it's a sweet had a moment. Triumph. Things changed, and like, and and like this, and this sequel. Sometimes it remembers there was a previous movie, and sometimes it doesn't remember there's a previous movie. Well, it's yeah, some- on the on the one hand, I was like, "Oh, interesting." Um, you know, Betty's not anywhere really around, and then mm. I'm like thinking, like, if that's how they would have gotten her back, I'm glad she's not in it. Yeah, I mean, it would have totally destroyed the character and made the character a joke. You can see why she said no. Um, I it mean, also, been, you know, uh, it just a, a lot of distraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of the cast in here. Uh, from the first one, aren't back in this one because they didn't like the script. Um, even Booger didn't like the script and didn't really want to do it, and he was convinced by the studio, oh, we're going to fix the script, and they proceeded not to fix the script. So they had to <laughs> kind of do work on set to try and make it as best they could, and I think the money was good for the project, and they all wanted, uh, you know, this was the first thing Curtis Armstrong was in that got a sequel. He didn't have as many sequels in those days. Um Takeshi is notably absent. Yeah, that one's too bad. You do it. You have Lamar. You have um, the uh, the kid from the first one. Uh, was it Wormser? But he's shot up in height and stuff so much that he doesn't have that thing where oh, it's a cute kid in the group anymore. I think his dynamic isn't as. It's not his fault that he grew up, but. Um, well I mean there's like there were three years between films you know people do age yeah if this came out like a year after you could get away with it but three years like adolescent time you're 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 growing all over the place right I mean it's the the joke of him being the child genius doesn't work exactly he's not a child anymore no no it's like in those sitcoms where they have the little kid that's I mean the one I think that did this really bad was uh, what Modern Family you oh, had yeah. uh, the fam- the family adopted the uh, the gay family adopted the um, Asian daughter, which uh, and she's a baby, and you have kind of baby jokes, which is fine. And then all of a sudden, like one year, they just all of a sudden advance her by a few years because they wanted an actress that was older that could kind of speak back and have lines, but they don't, you know, they don't really explain the gap. It's not like a, um, it's not like something gradually you would see, or I think it, uh, on a sitcom, it's, in a movie, again, you can't do this because it's not done every year, but uh, Oh, and it's also, but... it's also weird casting, too, because, I mean, the kid, play, the, he's playing a kid in the first film, and, like, he's probably, you know, 15 playing, like, who you, I guess, is, like, 12, so at this point, he's probably, yeah. getting, and then there's no longer a joke, because he's no longer a child genius, he just looks like a college student. Right, and in fact, he looks more like a college student than the rest of the cast, and that makes yeah, it distracting. Yeah, he's not like, you know, 30. <laughs> yeah, in, in his 30s, where you, you can't slick back the hat and, you know, do the pocket protector, and that kind of saves it. But yeah, it does sort of draw focus and, and kind of um, wreck the joke. Uh, I think, you know, on the plus side here, you have uh, Mark Mothersbaugh uh, doing the music with Gerald V. Casale, and, and you get the credits with the uh, songs by Devo. 
or which enjoy. I was I mean, very just like, excited about, yeah, but I feel yeah. like I didn't. We didn't get a lot of it. No, well, you got a version of Itsy Witsy well, Teeny Weeny Polka Dot Bikini, which was pretty fun at the beginning. Yes, yeah. Cover. Well, well that's that's well, that's by the thirty eight specials though. There there is no like Devo performs the soundtrack, but there's no Devo songs on the soundtrack. Right, and it's not like. To the point where we're at now, where like if Mark Mothersbaugh scores like you know a Wes Anderson movie, you're gonna like buy that album because it's a fucking that score slaps. Um, whereas here it's just kind of like perfunctory. Yeah, it's not like The Graduate with songs by Paul Simon, where it's exactly a, yeah no a few notable numbers in there. Um, speaking of which, I mean yeah, I guess we can sp- speak about that that number by Thirty Eight Special, the uh, Back to Paradise. It's a more tra- much more traditional kind of. Um, rock song rock pop kind of number that you would hear over the opening credits of a movie it doesn't really talk about the storyline like a lot of other stuff would at the time it's not as fun as the revenge of the nerd song by the boogaloos in the first one but it's a it's an adequate number but it also feels like you could throw it in any other sex comedy and it would work perfectly fine yeah it felt just kind of like uh again kind of just perfunctory like it's just in there and it, and it works but it, it something else would have worked better <laughs> The thing is, you you take this and you you take this and you play this same exact song over a movie about people going to, about uh, about college students going to a ski lodge to get laid. It's the same exact song. It doesn't change anything. It would still work, right? Yeah, well, I, I guess paradise can be whatever you you define it to be, and it has a few lyrics. And if you listen to the full track off the album, it has lyrics like uh, "teacher, teacher, such and such." But that part is not done in the opening credits and weirdly um it takes a little bit for the opening credits to start you think they would have them hit the road almost immediately like in the first one but this one it, it's some of jokes about the the game packing up their uh like booger packing up a bag full of condoms and almost nothing else that's sort of funny but <laughs> okay i'm gonna talk about because they they try, they do their best to establish characters with this packing montage and uh, I yeah. a, and, and so Bo- so booger so yeah so so booger he's he's dumping unwrapped condoms <laughs> in, into his yes. bag but he but he's the, which okay that that's funny in a way because unwrapped if you've unwrapped it well you better use it because otherwise they don't stay fresh um <laughs> but the thing that drives me absolutely nuts so the first movie was R. this is pg-13 and if you'll notice he has more band-aids unopened band-aids in his bag than condoms and all the condoms we see aren't in condom wrappers they're just loose condoms and i think that's a casualty of the pg-13 rating i bet there was a limit to how many condoms they could show but we just got to fill this bag with something i don't know (laughs) band-aids it could be the band-aids don't make any sense I have a I so this is a weird question. I don't know. I wasn't alive in the seventies and early eighties. Um and I always wondered if this was just used as like part of a gag because like a condom taken out of a wrapper is more entertaining than a condom in a wrapper for comedic effect. Um and I remember like in early Brian De Palma movie, Hi Mom, like Brian and uh, Robert De Niro's character goes and gets like a vibrator and like condoms and stuff. And it's like a big rubbery fucking condom like that. The pharmacist like sells him. I'm like, okay, that couldn't be how things were. Right. Like, you know, like Coneheads. I remember like he like chews on a condom for as I think it's like bubble gum or something. And I was like, was that a thing Were were condoms like reusable or something at some point? Is this like a weird thing I just don't know about? 
Actually, at a time, yes, the original balkanized rubber condoms were designed to be reusable. You were supposed to clean them out uh, and use them again. And I know this because of an anecdote I got from my grandfather. <laughs> oh, not as not as effective the second time. Well, no, no, it's that he he and his brother. So when when my grandfather, so when my grandfather went to medical school or started going to medical school, he was still living basically with his entire extended family in this like farmhouse in Greenbrier Farms. This is in the before times. This is before World War II that I'm talking about. Okay. And he he and his brother being uh, being on the pole, uh, as they say in Britain. Um, they both got condoms because they had they had enough medical education to know the risks of what at the time mm-hmm. was called venereal disease. And he told me a story about how how when he he was he was out of town for like the weekend, and his mom came in to clean his room and found he and his brothers two reusable condoms <laughs> in his dresser. So she threw them out. And when he came up, keep in mind, he is a he is a college student. He is in medical school. When he comes back, his mom drags him to his room and beats him because <laughs> oh. he had a condom. Oh my goodness. And we that's, and we I mean, laugh. Like, uh, that's horrific abuse. <laughs> and it is, it is irresponsible. <laughs> I mean, you think of sort of the um, when you're saying originally original condom thresher, you're talking like way back with like a uh, uh, lambskin or <laughs> oh, the animal skin intestine sort of condoms. Animal intestines condoms. I don't know if those were re- meant to be reusable. I was sort of thinking if it was out of a I, natural material. Um, but I mean, that, it, that's been your educational moment for this, podcast. right? But, but yeah. certainly with with. with uh, uh, Condoms back then, it, it wasn't like you go today and it's like the cereal aisle where, uh, you know, different colors, different scents, different French tickles, yeah. ribs. <laughs> right, right. Latex, non-latex, this, that, that, right? So it's, um, it wasn't like a whole huge industry, but at the same time, you're starting to see more jokes about it in movies. There was a movie... Um, Oh, I think, uh, yeah, uh, from the late 70s from uh, uh, Blake Edwards. Uh, I, I don't recall the title, but it has a gag where um, it was just after Star Wars came out. I think the movie might have even come out that same year, late 77, early 78. But it's one of the first instances of a Star Wars gag in a movie. The lights are out and a couple uh, takes out colored condoms and they glow in the dark and they use them like lightsabers. <laughs> so, so making lightsaber the exact noises. Same- the exact same year of Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise, is Amazon Women on the Moon, which is a very funny sketch comedy movie. Yes, Carrie Fisher yeah. is in it, Arsenio Hall's in it, Steve Gutenberg, Michelle Pfeiffer, amazing cast. But there is a there is a sketch where a young man is on a date, and he's going to get laid, and he goes to his local pharmacy to get a condom, and it's all about, and and it's just all it's it's just all about he's trying to be really casual, but the farm, but it's a, it's like a small town, so the pharmacist knows him and his parents and is grotesquely offended that he's trying to buy a condom. <laughs> it's amazing. I think, yeah, um, so go on. I, I, I'm glad we, uh, addressed this because I was genuinely kind of curious and or confused. I figured at one point or another that these prophylactics were possibly reusable. Cause that just sounds very old timey. Um, yes. and then I was thinking, I was like, maybe booger has like, is grimy enough to have like a fucking like 
reusable rubber from like you know the fucking 40s or something like that oh yeah well, sure just so here's a question does booger look like the type of person who would even bother to use a condom that's no. the other thing too i'm like he's surprisingly you know uh you know exercising safe sex Maybe it's trying to gross, send, but he's not dumb. Maybe that's it. Right. Maybe exactly. trying to send a message to the kids. I mean, you, you mentioned the band aids in the bag. What if the gag was you open up and you see band aids on top of used condoms? Oh, like that could be. That'd be kind. Of, that sounds like kind of a booger thing. But yeah, you, I, you see, I wouldn't want those two to be mentioned in the same sentence. <laughs> you know, if you Jesus want God. us to perform this kind of punch up for you, you Jesus know what Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sequelcast at gmail.com. Yeah, anyway, I think, so. um, I, uh, surprisingly enough, we're being more gross than the movie, and we're talking about Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah, yeah, I think it, part of it is that it, the original, it was a bit more raw, and uh, but also more uh, uh, rapey and, and some other stuff in there, right? But this one, the second one, they tone stuff down. But the, I'll give it its credit. It doesn't tone stuff down so much that it feels like a sitcom. For that, next week we'll be talking about the Revenge of the Nerds TV pilot, which is terrible. Um, oh boy! Which is really moving things down to like a, you know, broadcast on Fox G-rated Saved by the Bell kind of experience. But I, I just keep thinking um, Big Bang Theory when I when I hear Revenge of the Nerds TV series. Um, it, it's even worse than that if you can imagine. But yeah, so I mean, this Revenge of the Nerds, Nerds in Paradise. You see what people pack up. I like that Lamar. They still. Uh, lean hard on him being a, a queer character. That wasn't something you saw a lot in stuff at the time, and that he—he's not a main character of the movie, and you know he's not treated especially seriously. But that—that uh, that you have that representation of a not just queer, but a person of color that's queer in the film, I think is um, is a good thing. And you see him packing up the men magazines and all that stuff. Well, I, I like and, you that, know, like out of the closet into the streets, some like actual literature of the time. But this—this this yeah, is yeah. this drives me crazy because. He's not allowed to really be gay in this one. In, in the previous film, not, no, he had a much. boyfriend. We yeah, saw yeah, his boyfriend. They were we at the dance. We saw them dance together. What I do like, though, is that while he's not taken seriously, he's never really the butt of any gay jokes or anything. Exactly. They never ridicule him. And it kind of points to the theme of like inclusivity of the films, which is, while I'm not a huge fan, I do really appreciate is that you know, for again, this is eighty-seven. Um, original film is eighty-four. Um, I mean, that's there's something to be said for that. That you have an out gay person of color in your film, and it's not the butt of any real jokes. It's the butt of a few references, you know, uh, at, the, at least. But it's I, I can appreciate that. But because this is PG thirteen as opposed to R. He's not allowed to actually be gay on screen. He's just yeah, mildly exactly. effeminate and dresses flamboyantly. Like the close, the closest we get to him just straight up being gay is when uh, is is when everybody is sort of like ogling Sonny Carstairs, and he just kind of leans in and says, "I wonder if she has a brother." <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's, it's almost like it's a in cute the... line, but I wish he had more stuff like that going right. on. They, it's like they toned him down to the point where, like in the uh you know, uh, Hollywood code era films that like you had what you would call the sissy, you know, he's like okay. the guy who would like, you know, be like, you know, looking at dresses and be like, mm -hmm, but you know, we all knew he was gay, but he wasn't, you know, and he feels like he's been reduced to that in this film. Yeah. The, the role of the sissy or the Nance or all that, you know, all that sort of stuff. I'm, right. I mean, as you see these characters, uh, in the beginning, you know, one that is, is notably not in the film that much is Gilbert. 
played by Anthony Edwards. And Anthony Edwards did not want to do this film at all, but he was contractually obligated. So they worked something out where he's in as few scenes as possible. And that's yeah, why he's great. He has, to do most of his performance sitting down. <laughs> yes. And it's, um, I think it hurts the movie. You know, the character of Gilbert has a sweetness to him in that first film. That is a nice counterpoint to the the sort of other raunchiness. And he's kind of, if, if some of these other nerds are more progressive, so to speak, um, you know, uh, Gilbert is kind of the more conservative 1950s kind of standard uh, kind of, oh, su- such a nice boy kind of nerd. Right. Uh, and I think that was the relationship Gilbert had with Lewis, I think, was something real sweet and something that kind of started the, that first movie off and really got the characters going and there's good interplay between them. Uh, and, in, and in this, it's just so dumb. I almost He just shouldn't have been in it at all because it's just, he, he feels like he's throwing yeah. in the performance. You oh, know, this is after Top Gun at this point. So right. he thought he was going to be a big movie star. That didn't exactly happen. He would kind of uh, really make it big years later in uh, uh, ER. Class is back in session, and HyperX has the grade-A gear you need for dorm life, remote classes, and for schooling folks online. Shop the HyperX back-to-school deals going on now at HyperX.com to help make your return to student life a breeze. Comfortable cloud headsets can keep you focused in as you cram for finals with some lo-fi beats, and stay productive with lightweight pulse fire mice, responsive alloy keyboards, and more. Keep your GPA and your KDA high with HyperX products and accessories. Yeah, definitely. And this is, I think, what hurts the film is that they, for one, without Gilbert, Lewis is kind of the leader. And the character is strong enough to be the leader, but I just don't think there's enough material for him to work with. And other detriment this has is that they don't have a dynamic. I feel like you would have more of like a prankster-ish quality of them kind of collaborating together. Their Mm. contrasting personalities would kind of lead to more hijinks. Without um, you kind of lose that pranksterish quality, and Lewis just kind of becomes like you know the main driving for- force of the gang. Um, he's not bad at it, but you definitely feel that absence big time. And when they lean forever on, in a day on that gag of let's have just Lewis go ooh, 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 another time, yeah, like the, the laugh seal. is funny the first few times. <laughs> well, so so much of the humor in this movie just seems to be well. Let's play a greatest hits of the gags from the first movie. Yes, except I mean I, I do give give them credit. Well, we'll get the plot forward here in a minute. Um, but it, it's I do give them credit for setting it in a different setting and then just doing it at the college again. At least yeah, that would being be in, in in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, you get uh, a big change of scenery. You get. A little bit of um, of the culture. I mean, I think it, I think it's weird in this movie. You have the alpha betas from the first film as bad guys here again. That's a bit tiresome. Well, they yeah, are but- a national fraternity, so I do like the idea that like it's bigger than it's bigger than just one college, and so as like a consequence sector. of what the nerds did in the previous movie, they're going to suffer in a whole new way in this movie. Only they don't. All the same stuff that happened to them in the first movie happens here. A lot of meetings about, you know, the uh, the, mach- the machinations of uh, international fraternities and what have you, too. Sure. Uh, and, where, um, when did you all see this for the first time? 
I was working at a, um, you know, I was out of college, not doing that great, doing some different retail jobs, and I worked at a place called Movie Stop, a, a short-lived franchise owned by the GameStop people, uh, which which meant they paid terribly. And uh, <laughs> but but we didn't rent. It was weird, you know. It was like a warehouse-style store. We didn't rent movies, but people thought we did because we were so big. We just sold new and used uh, DVDs. And and um, yeah, towards the end, we we had HD DVDs and Blu-rays and things, which managed to confuse customers. That's its own story. I think I've talked about in the past. But yeah, so from there, I, I with the discount, I could get, uh, in, increase my movie collection fairly cheap. So this was uh, on a two-pack with the first film with no special features on one disc. I think Revenge of the Nerds one and two, and and that's when I saw it. And I, the first one I had seen as a as a middle school kid and really liked it. And the second one. I was just not terribly impressed with it. Watching it the second time uh, for the show, I I liked it a little more, but I think it, it's also because more time has passed since uh, 1987, since when I watched it last, and it just felt more of a period piece in some ways. Um, Alex, what about you? Had you seen this before for the show? Uh, no, I had not. I um, I'd only seen it in preparation for this episode. And I was kind of just expecting more of the same, and that's kind of what we got. But um, the the PG rating kind of threw me because what made uh, the first one so successful was its raunchiness, which is one of the things that I I don't think I liked about. It was one of the things I didn't like about that film so much. However, um, a few of the changes that I did appreciate though was the. Um, Inclusion of uh, Bradley Whitford as the main bad guy over uh, Stan from the first film. Definitely. Bradley Whitford, he's been on uh, The West Wing, I think, most notably. And uh, he also was in uh, Cabin in the Woods, I think. He's he's just a really strong character actor that has a lot of, uh, lot of energy in there and has this... Uh, Kind of quirkiness to him. What about you, Thresher? When did you first watch this? Was it on Comedy Central or? No, the the first time I saw this would be on would have been on VHS in I think 1990, maybe maybe 1989. Uh, my 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 neighbors, my neighbor Joey, I think rented this or bought this or something. He was obsessed with it. He thought it was the funniest movie in the world. That I had to see it. Oh uh, no. And I and and I and I saw it, and I absolutely hated it. Uh, <laughs> my opinion has has changed slightly, but slightly. But but keep in mind, this is the same person whose favorite Star Trek film is Search for Spock. <laughs> so I should have known. I should have known. Even a science I fiction. I mean, the beginning of this film does the Star Wars crawl. Which and is, they even do that poorly. It's too slow. They don't trust you to read it. They think you're too dumb for that. So they have yeah. a trailer. They have they have a trailer announcer guy just read it, and his cadence is so weird. It's like he's reading it off the screen and doesn't know where to put the pauses. He has this <laughs> marked up script in front of him, and and you know just the over reliance on the pocket protector. Also, the font should not be double spaced. It should be <laughs> one point five space to enhance readability. Uh, also, the um, good point. It's worth noting the uh, the narrator. Uh, is the same guy who did the narration on the um, Super Mario Brothers three cartoon? Weird. Oh yes, it was a legend. No one would forget. 
Bowser and his Koopa kids are trying to, yeah, it's this, uh, it just feels like a not, yeah, if you're going to do narration, why not have, uh, Orson Welles? Oh, no, have a character from the movie do it. (laughs) Or, I mean, if it was Booger, that'd be pretty low energy, but. Right. Or or, or Ogre doing it could be funny. I don't know. Like, there's things you could do. Also, it's like, what's the point? It doesn't really inform you of much. And also, it's like, so why Star Wars? Because nerds? Because the Darth Vader or the off-brand Darth Vader thing from the first film? Like, Well, you have Anthony Edwards show up as a kind of a ghost in a dream or something that's vaguely Star Wars-y. But yeah. well, you, know what I, you know what I think it is? Because remember, when, when Star Wars, when the original Star Wars trilogy came out... It wasn't. A, it wasn't a nerd. Star Wars wasn't a nerd thing. It was an it was everybody thing. thing. Yeah. It was a four yes, quadrant yes. hit. But this, we are now in 1987. Now the only people really carrying, like everyone saw Star Wars, everyone loved it. But the only people really carrying a torch for Star Wars were the nerds, were the people like us who were reading the novels and reading the comic books and getting and playing the video games when they were available. Um, so I think that's why I think that's why they go with Star Wars because now in '87 Star Wars is a nerd thing. It's well, a nerd also, thing. Also, I mean, by '87 Marvel stopped their comics line of Star Wars. I think you know probably the cartoons of droids and Ewoks had stopped by then. Maybe you had the. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, it, it, there there had been a real lull. Even with the books, there wasn't that much at this time. It wasn't until the um, early '90s where uh, what is it? Bantam did that kind of an era of the empire as a star wars novel and hardcover it made the it this big prestige oh, yeah, also, yeah this whichever big like thing. whichever big blockbuster movie is like adjacent to a like satire or comedy that's what's going to get like knocked off i mean like years after the matrix people were still doing like bullet time yes. gags and shit like Shrek. that Shrek, so like it. sure or you know fucking like hot shots doing like a t2 parody you know like everyone's saying hostel la vista blank blank you know um, it's just lazy. I think just like lazy writing. Basically, it's like, oh yeah, let's 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 rip on Star Wars because that's huge and everyone likes it and blah blah blah. It would have been better if I mean, what if they had like a cameo from? Uh, I, I don't think Mark Hamill would have done it at this point, but you could have done a, a, a maybe a Star Trek or a cameo would have been more likely. Like Leonard Nimoy comes on screen or George Sulu's on the beach going, oh my. Like you could have had fun with some kind of nerd or do culture some, like, cameos, meta joke or something. You know, where you see like the title crawl, and it's like it's a year after the Republic, and then Lewis walks on screen, like, "Oh, I'm on the wrong room," duh, you know. Yeah, uh, you so see, in all in all honesty, yeah. George Takei has too much class to play Edgar Poe Snotty Wong. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I thought that was interesting. I'm like, James Hong? What? Yeah, this movie right. gets points for having James Hong in it, because he elevates even this material, James Hong elevates. It's but, a rule. Damn. He makes everything he's better. He's the age of my grandma, 93 years old, and he... Uh, he was well, just you, in a movie this year. Did you see the, with the ceremony when he finally, finally got his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? I have no. not seen the ceremony. I knew he got it, but... It, it was great. Like he's so he's so happy. You know, he does this whole speech, and then he just gets up. And he just starts dancing with this troupe of like Chinese acrobats. That's uh, how... and it's and it's so it's so great. It's so awesome seeing seeing him be like that. Man is a living Hollywood history. It is so great to see him finally getting recognized. 
Oh, big time. Yeah, I mean, speaking of um, Hollywood history, the the director of this is notable. Joe Roth uh, is is most known for being a chairman at, of uh, Fox uh, and Walt Disney Studios, and later he founded Revolution Studios. But uh, this was a second movie he directed. That his debut was Streets of Gold. It's not really sure why I why he did direct anything. Maybe just because he could, because he was producing a gazillion things. But probably his most notable thing he directed was America's Sweethearts, which is this Billy Crystal, Julia Roberts um, comedy from 2001 that's not that great. Really? Or Christmas with the Cranks with uh, Tim Allen and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. So so you're saying he contains multitudes? He contains multitudes. He does different genres. I think that's interesting. But I would say there's nothing of his directorial style that is especially notable and I think the timing in this is is worse on uh, a lot of the gags than than in the first one. But I did love that um, James Cromwell came back briefly in the beginning in the car as um, I, I know, like as Lewis's like, dad. Like, like, like uh, was he like an unofficial like producer or something? <laughs> no, I I think he. But He's, what's um what's weird is he comes back for both of the TV sequels as well. What like, I guess hell? he he must have an he affinity for this character. Or yeah, just a working actor. It could just be as simple as that. But it's like yeah. of all the roles they try and recast in the other movies, like he's he's there and he's willing to do the dumb voice and the laugh and, and like, good for him. You know, like there's for some, like yeah. two and a half minutes of screen time. Um what yeah, I also yeah. one thing I do kind of appreciate is that you get James Cromwell in the beginning. And also you actually see them doing more like genuine nerd stuff. They make like a very like, you know, crude like GPS tracker thing. When they get like oh, a yeah. like a sap phone call from fucking uh, what's his face, um yes from uh, oh, from Gilbert Gilbert, the, from Gilbert yeah. yeah or like you know when they make the like you know fucking Gilligan's Island style fucking metal detector um uh-huh. some of that stuff was uh it was interesting um but yeah I don't know what uh I feel like the first act took a while to get going and wasn't very funny part of it is of the time in in the 80s and less so in the 90s you know it's sort of you talk about screenwriting it's a three-act structure so what that means is you spend the first third of the movie trying to get to where the actual meat of the story is and i think modern audiences just wouldn't have that patience or maybe you would get them to florida in like five minutes or something yeah well well, the thing is you've already had the opening text crawl so you already know the action is going to be in florida so just start with them stepping off the plane yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah. we, we don't need a lot of business on campus, you know. Right. It's not you don't. No one goes to these movies to see packing montages. It's right, especially if we're not going to do anything very funny with them, aside from a bunch of weird condoms. Well, and Betty's portrait going into uh, going into Lewis's bag. So we acknowledge yeah. that she exists, although he, he effectively spends the entire movie trying to cheat. Might as well be trying to cheat on her. Right. Yes, it's it's blinking. You miss it, and uh, I did like as they're they're driving from um, the airport down to uh, the the hotel that they stay at. You do get a lot of them gawking out the window and just making weird comments and noises. I mean, it's a bit like in uh, Beverly Hills Cop when Axel Foley's in Beverly Hills for the first time. That's sort of you know a, a standard sort of '80s moment. Yeah, yeah that I mean, fish out of water thing. Fish out of water thing. But there, I mean, there's stuff in this movie that, like, 
oh, the first movie had a rap song. Let's do one here, except let's put it in the middle for some reason, which <laughs> feels like it's in the wrong part of the movie. And, like, there's this, like, feeling of, like, triumph, but it feels, like, sort of unearned and not very climactic. Well, because right. it's a temporary thing. And right. I gotta give the Alpha Betas credit, because the whole idea is the national Alpha Betas want to now get revenge, get their revenge on the nerds, because of what happened in the first film. And I gotta give them credit. They think on their feet when the nerds turn the resolution around so that it can't be passed. The Alpha Betas come up with a contingency plan but it's not a contingency plan that okay this movie the fact of this movie is false do you mind if i if i spoil no, the no, ending go for to it. explain something okay so so we, we again they're playing the hits because the nerds get to the hotel only to find out they don't have room so they have to move into a shitty place from just like the first film i'll talk about that shitty place later <laughs> um, but when they're finally you know the alpha betas um, put forward a motion for the national like fraternity organization that the fraternities not only have to uphold ac- certain academic standards, which clearly they don't, because we learned some of the Alpha Beta's GPAs, and they're not high, um, <laughs> but they now have to have physical standards, which of course the nerds wouldn't be able to meet, and the nerds do a whole big party with a whole rap number opposing Resolution 15, and it works. Uh, and oh, and the condoms come back because they release a big floating banner that says "No on 15." That's like half the balloons are condoms. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, so when we go to the vote the next day, uh, resolution 15 is struck down. The nerds have won. But then the Alpha Beta uh, brings Lewis up to ask him to co-sponsor a new bill to have high moral standing, which, hey, the nerds have no problem with. And I rewatched this to make sure the exact wording of the amendment is uh, is people found guilty of wrongdoing. Now, this all becomes a setup because he lets the nerds borrow his car, but then reports the car stolen, so they get right. arrested, and that's enough to have their whole for the whole national tried-out fraternity disbanded. But that's not what the Constitution says. They are never found guilty of grand theft auto, and in fact, uh, and in fact, Sunny Carstairs, the clerk from the hotel, she knows it was a fake, and she get and she exonerates them. So there is no conflict. They are never at risk of having their chapter disbanded. Yeah. But then the actual climax, the big moment of triumph, isn't the nerds being true to themselves and achieving a victory. The big triumph is when Lewis just punches the leader of the Alpha Betas into a pool. Mm -hmm. Well, now he's committed assault, and at least 100 people saw it, and now he can be found guilty of a crime. So now he has just disbanded their whole fraternity. I know. I thought that was interesting. I and in the in the moment, I liked when Lewis clocked him. Um, but in terms of structure, it's not that bright. But um, I did like that moment, though. In the moment, I do like it when he when he slugs him in the face. Um, the other thing too, I one thing I do like though is Bradley Whitford. I mentioned this earlier. Is that I think he's a more dynamic villain over Stan because like. This really does feel like someone who's like not just like a bro, but like a smart one, like someone who can really get yeah. under your skin and really kind of fuck well, your life up. He's a schemer, and just the fact that you know the the assistant manager of the hotel is also an alpha beta, and he pulls strings. 
he he pulls fraternity strings to get the nerds kicked out of the hotel. Like that's that's neat. I I wish his stuff was like I love all that his stuff is conspiratorial. Like he is a villain worthy of the nerds. Yeah, he's very like Machiavellian. You know, like he, he can do some skeezy underhanded shit, and he's got that. He's, he's got great villain com- qualities to him. Um, I think he was a, a very a big improvement on the on the on the bad not the whatever you want to call them the villains of the first movie. Yeah, we get um, some stuff with the the nerds on the island near the end of the film, and you have Ogre have a change of uh, heart where he gets high and realizes he's a nerd. <laughs> well. Well, not this. This is one of the things that also doesn't quite ring true to me because, on the one hand, so nerd, they, clearly the producers thought that Ogre was the breakout star from the first movie, so of course he has to become one of the good guys in this movie. But yeah, like, like, oh, like Ogre, when when the Alpha Betas abduct the nerds again, the Alpha Betas they have they have abducted people. That's a crime. <laughs> you can have it is the crimes in the first suspended. one, but. But, you know, they and they dump him on the island and, you know, Ogre turns out to not be on the same page as them. So they throw Ogre overboard. Turns out he can't swim, but Wormser rescues him. And during their time on the island and bonding over over marijuana, which 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 Booger calls bush, which no one has ever called marijuana bush. The term is grass. Uh, that's clearly yeah. they weren't allowed to say an act actual euphemism for drugs because you know they never call it pot they never yeah. call it marijuana they never mm-hmm. name what they're smoking i mean but, but you know in words end, for you know, it he, uh, bush yeah. is not one but, of them but, you know but but in the end like like you know ogre joins them and i do kind of like that but the problem the problem is and again this is just like the climax with the punch we get a little afterward where where ogre is officially inducted into uh into the tri-delts but he's in Bag. He's in the bad fitting pants. He's got his hair slicked back. He's got a pocket protector. He's a stereotypical nerd. No, it should mm-hmm. be like Booger. He Ogre is a singular nonconformist individual who doesn't fit in with any other groups. So yeah. Ogre should join the Tridelts as Ogre. He should not conform to the image of Lewis and Gilbert. Right. He's his own dude. Uh, yeah. He's not going to crunch numbers and use a fucking, you know, he's not going to use that pocket protector. Let's, let's face it. <laughs> yeah, like, yep. it's it's just such a bizarre thing. Like, that's just, it's just not, it's not a good, it's not, it's again, the movie is not being true in that moment. Definitely not. I mean, um, you know, the actor that played Ogre Donald Gibb, this was the big part in uh, his career he did appear in other movies like conan the barbarian he's done tons of television but um most in uh, a few video games including a part in zork grand inquisitor but one thing that's i appreciate is in uh 2004 he teamed up with the chicago bar called trader todd's adventure bar and they have a a brand of ogre beer and he did advertisements for them oh interesting (laughs) So he got his nice uh, own little brand of beer, so to speak, as a tie-in with a local bar in Chicago. That's kind of neat. He, he's still, you know, he's a six-foot-four guy. He has a big beard. He has, I mean, you're right, the whole name Ogre, it, it brings uh, something to mind. And then when you have him dressed like a nerd or whatever, it just takes it all away. Like, you're trying to, 
if every if you make all the bad guy if you make a bad guy a good guy then that sort of makes him you question his motivations in the first film like if you're gonna do that turn make it really count and it just seems like a a, a, a thing that doesn't it should have been more thought out maybe more give him a bigger part in the movie set him up more to make the turn mean something well he, he does he does have a bigger part in the movie he gets a lot more dialogue gets a lot more screen time I'm also wondering if they let him improvise because some of his bits Could are be. so like winky to the camera and so loose like even before he gets thrown off the boat like it sounds like like he starts to flub a line, but then he saves it and is like really quick. Oh yeah, I forgot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like they clearly just left that. <laughs> Previously on Chat of the Wild. Did anyone kid all the bugs for Agatha? No, no, I meant to, and I even had a bug that I like could have given back to her, and I forgot. That bug is gone. Don't go her. in there if if you do, and then not give it to her. I know. She can smell it on you. She knows. I know you have both. I know you're holding out on me. <laughs> I can smell it. <laughs> Did anyone get um, all the pose? No. No, God, no. Chat of the Wild. Breaking down Zelda and Zelda-like games, one dungeon at a time. Wednesdays on the HyperX Podcast Network. Us. We're the Spirit Hunters, and we're a show that treats Hunter Hunter and Yu Hakusho's author as the center of the universe. Some weeks we do linguistic analysis... Chinese meaning of this character is to smelt or refine, but so the changed meaning in Japanese it means to temper. Other times, we get absolutely smashed. So we take one shot every time. Yusuke uses the ray gun. One hour later. This is the least coherent episode. Sarah, you... I think your apartment is haunted. <laughs> Check us out at the HyperX Podcast Network. Class is back in session, and HyperX has the grade A gear you need for dorm life, remote classes, and for schooling folks online. Shop the HyperX back-to-school deals going on at HyperX.com to help make your return to student life a breeze. Comfortable cloud headsets can help keep you focused in as you cram for finals with some lo-fi beats and stay productive with lightweight pulsefire mice, responsive alloy keyboards, and more. Keep your GPA and your KDA high with HyperX products and accessories. It's just, I don't know, anytime they, they have a, a bad guy like that and kind of switch him over, I just get annoyed. And I think of when uh, ABC did the revival of the cartoon Doug. They made Roger, the bad guy, kind of like Doug's friend. Uh, yeah, that's dumb. And changes his hairstyle. And it's just like, uh, it goes with the softening of everything in the film. But any any last thoughts about Revenge of the Nerds 2? Um. I, I, I want to talk about, so the, the the shitty place they moved to is this rundown hotel loaded with chickens called yes. the Hotel Coral Essex. And you know with a name that sweaty, it has to be the setup for a gag. And it's also full of, like, because on the one hand, that's where they meet uh, James Hong, who just apparently lives there as the most disgusting man in Florida, who becomes yeah. Booger's Zen master. But of course, Booger mastering the art of disgustingness does not pay off in any way. There's just a few weird gags of him, you know, getting trained by the mystical Asian dude. Um, but, you know, and, and I love the the thing with the, the hotel, the, the woman who runs the hotel, where like, oh, well, I'm just going to go kill your lunch, and she just grabs a chicken and walks off screen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this, this is another bit of, of like where the, where the movie does not trust the audience because, um, you know, there's all this Cuban imagery in the hotel, and she speaks with a, with a, an over-the-top, and I'm pretty sure affected Cuban accent. And she even looks like Desi Arnaz, and she has these, like, things on her face that I 
or not Jesse Owens, she looks like Lucille Ball, who was not Cuban. She was just married to a Cuban, but she mm-hmm. has these these like plastic like band-aid things on the side of her face, which I think are there to imply she's had plastic surgery to look like Lucille Ball, uh Lucille Ball, but that doesn't pay off. But anyway, they're given the best room, the Ricky Ricardo suite. Again, Ricky Ricardo was a fictional character. Desi Arnaz was the Cuban was the Cuban polymath who played Ricky Ricardo, but they don't trust the audience to know who Desi Arnaz is, even though he's a real Cuban American hero. Um, and it's just, it's just everything in this scene. There's something wrong. Everything, everything in the hotel Coral Essex, there's something wrong with, but I, I mentioned how the, the hotel Coral Essex is, is a, uh, a, set up for a gag well of course it is because when they have their party to get a lot of attention to it they they rewire the sign so instead of saying hotel coral essex it says hot oral sex so i know go. and that's like the writing's on the wall it's like okay a I real mad essex. magazine fold-in moment there right it's like i see essex that's gonna be sex i see coral that's gonna be oral <laughs> That is one of the more famous gags in the movie. Uh, any last thoughts, Alex, on this? Um, I there, there's a few things that about this that I enjoyed a little more than the first. Um, again, I mentioned Bradley Whitford. I think he's pretty inspired. Um, you know, some good villain action there. Um, the, the the little romance between this is such a bad name. Sonny Carstairs is, is Carstairs like a, a name or is that like Carstairs is a name. It's it, okay. It's, it's right. rare. But okay, it is a name. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, anywho, like, the, there was a little sweetness there, which was interesting. Um, uh, some good character actors. The guy that plays the owner of the hotel, was I, I like that actor. He's, he's pretty interesting. Um, but, I mean, on a whole, it's pretty flaccid um, follow-up to a film that it wasn't that crazy about to begin with. Um, I think I like this, like, a, a slight margin more than the first one, but that's not saying a lot, because I didn't really care for the first one to begin with. So you would give this a sequel no? Sequel no, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, yeah me too. I'd give this a sequel no. I think Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise. It, 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 it feels rushed. It feels like some people are doing this movie at gunpoint. I mean, there's, it's nice to see some of the people back, but it's not... The whole, not the whole gain, and that that always takes something a little bit out of it. And as fun as the Florida setting is, there's so many different things to do in Florida that I think you could have done more with it than had them do stuff at the the hotel and uh, and all that business. Like you could, like like you said, like on the poster, like you could do the surfing, you could do. There, there's uh, hijinks afoot, and they don't really capitalize on any of that. Yeah, yeah, you could do manatee jokes. I don't know. There's, there's, there's things you could do. Tourism stuff by like a, a, you know, a gang or something. You know, I, there's so much shit going on. You could riff on. You know. Yeah, they. Uh, they run afoul of a Scarface-esque, you know, drug lord or something. Sure. It, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good idea. All <laughs> kinds of things. I mean, and it's. Yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, Nerds in Paradise, Not I like the first one better than this. Um, this isn't terrible, but it's just so much on autopilot a lot of the time that just sort of give it a, a mild uh, sequel. No. Uh, Thrasher? <laughs> See, this, I'm proving this movie is something to sneeze at. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give it a sequel no for all the reasons we've, we've already talked about. I would have given it a sequel no when I first saw it. You know, I... I 
my, my opinion of it has improved slightly, but that's due mainly because of the inclusion of James Hong. Um, yes. But that's, you know, that's not enough to save this movie. Oh, and I can't believe we didn't even talk about the movie doesn't even know who its characters are. Yeah, good point. Because Poindexter, <laughs> in, in the opening scene when they're at the airport, they, they established that Poindexter has studied many languages. And because he, he can say bite my crank in any language, among other things. But then, you know, when they go to the Hotel Coral Essex, he doesn't know how to speak Spanish. Uh, but then when they when when the when the Alpha Betas pretend to be Seminoles performing a virgin sacrifice in 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 a in, in which manages to out a scene which manages to out racism the first film. Uh, you know, Ponder's like, well, well, like, well, shouldn't they be smart enough first and foremost to realize that these can't be Seminoles because their garb is all wrong and also straight out of a costume shop and also they're white dudes? But no, they don't pick up on that until the very tail end of the scene when Poindexter says something in Seminole and none of the people in disguise know what he's saying. He's like, shouldn't that have been the first thing you tried? Do they only just then remember that he could speak every language in the world? Yeah. It's, it's kind of the general sloppiness here, I'm afraid to say. So Also, alligators don't roar like lions. <laughs> Great. I don't they even don't remember the alligators. Yeah. yeah. It's such a quick bit. I can you can be forgiven for not remembering. Yeah. <laughs> it is the kind of movie that you forget it while you're watching it. Yeah. Like, wait. No. I had to like rewind I at first I didn't believe it was James Hong. <laughs> I was like, no, it's probably just someone who looks like him. And I was like, holy shit, it actually is. Yeah, Comedy Central, I recall, would show this one a lot because of the PG-13 rating and less uh, edits to it. Yeah. <clears throat> so on to what, you, uh, what you're watching. Um, Alex, why don't you start? So um, my girlfriend and I have, like, a pile of movies that haven't been watched yet. You know, you don't put them on the shelf till you watch them, obviously. So there's this one movie that I've been I've been choosing over and over, like, let's watch this, let's watch this. And um, that film is um, of unknown origin. And it looks cool. It's, like, got Peter Weller in, like, the, the covers, got, like, this, like, portrait of, like, an American family, like, a big rip through it. Um, the trailer, like... Has all these fucking, like, intense, like, you know, creeper scenes and, like, their fucking, like, Brooklyn townhouse, like, fucking just, like, disappears in thin air. It looks like this really cool, like, you know, supernatural, you know, like, high-concept uh, horror film. And you know what the fucking story is? What? It's about this, like, hotshot broker dude with, like, a high-profile job. His wife and kid go out of town, and he has rats. <laughs> that's the fuck that's, that's the horror film and i'm like are the rats a met are they in his mind are they like fucking thermonuclear rats is this like a black cat edgar Allan poe thing is it really about him and there's nothing going on at all no it's actually about fucking rats and he like kind of goes mad and it's like th this is the dumbest thing i've ever seen and again if you watch the trailer i i think they're maybe smart enough not to mention that that's actually about fucking rats um 
And they just cover it up with all these, you know, cool edits and stuff like that. And I, I can't really remember the last time I was I was so disappointed with a uh, with a uh, horror film. Um, again, it, it looked like I'm you. If you watch the trailer, you'd be like, "Holy shit, this looks like like it's gonna be like the Changeling or something," you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something something is awry in a in a nice house in the city, right? Um, no, it's again, it's about a guy fighting rats, like. And he's going mad. Ooh, it's it's so stupid. Like you'll see like water coming out of the kitchen, and you think it's like a ghost or something. Like no, rats actually. It's like you no. Know, at first, he gets like the superintendent and like the exterminator, and he's like, ah, he wants to have rats chewing through. I'm like, no, it's a ghost. It's something creepier. No, it's fucking rats. It's it's so stupid. It's fucking it's creepy mouse hunt is what it is. But Peter, <laughs> it's it's creepy barely- mouse hunt would have been a better title. Yeah, I wouldn't have bought it. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Thrasher, what about you? What have you been watching? So I watched a, uh, a, 2000, uh, a 2022 horror film starring Sandra Oh uh, called Uma. And it's, uh, it's, a, hor- it's a horror film, and, and the, sh- the short of it is that it's, it's about a, a reclusive woman who lives in a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere uh, with her daughter, and they and you know she she has she has some psychological problems but she starts to be haunted by the ghost of her abusive mother and you know starting out you can be forgiven for thinking oh maybe this is all in her head but it becomes overtly supernatural uh, as it goes on so overall i like this movie it was very it was very atmospheric uh it has a handful of good scares like it's 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 actually about something it's it's about generational trauma which is one of the subjects du jour of of modern films but and this ties into what i don't like about it no um, rats right but no 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 rats um okay but it 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 commits it has the same problem that so that i would say almost every thing every movie about general generational trauma does where the person responsible for the generational trauma is com- is left completely off the hook. Mm. Uh, you know, because like a big a big part of this movie is about Sandra Oh making peace with her relationship with her mother and how it's affecting her daughter. But at the same time, like, and and that's and that's that's great. That that's that's good for her. But because the ghost of the mother can't even admit wrongdoing, nothing's ever really resolved. Like it's it's and, and I see this happen over and over again. It's 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 why I'm very critical of the notion of of radical forgiveness because at some point you are just giving your abusers a a moral blank check. You know what, what the the on, the onus needs to be on the on the abuser to stop the abuse and fix their goddamn selves up, not on the victim to forgive the abuser. So that they can move on, because it doesn't work. The scars, the scars are still there. You can't apologize a scar away. And I know this from right. experience. Yeah, that's um, that's too bad. Sandra Oh, I think it often, you know, is a an actress that kind of, for whatever reason, she can fade in the background sometimes. And this might be in really good things. So well, it's, it's uh, great seeing her in an outright starring role. And you know, like I, yeah, I, I yeah. feel like. Most people only know her from Arliss, but she's done so many other things. 
Oh, she has, you know, been a lot of ensemble pieces and TV shows and stuff, movies she here was and there. Really good in Sideways, that Alexander Payne movie with um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that movie. Sorry, not. Oh, and also, uh, no scene in which David Letterman introduced this movie to Oprah Winfrey and then introduced Oprah Winfrey to this movie. Of course. Interesting. What a crazy. What a crazy bit. Um, I mean, yeah, with the Sideways, that that was based on a book, and that book had a sequel, but they never did a movie of that oh. sequel. Well, give them give them time. It'll be direct yeah, to streaming. Uh, yeah, probably, or maybe it'll be it's a, a series at this point, how everything seems to be a TV series. Speaking of which, what I've been watching is a few of these trailers coming out of uh, San Diego Comic-Con as of this recording. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I'll, I'll talk about um, two of them. One is the trailer to the uh, Dungeons and Dragons movie, Dungeons and Dragons uh, Honor Among the Thieves. It's the uh, fourth Dungeons and Dragons movie. Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes out in theaters, I think we'll talk about that series on this show. But it's, um, you know, the Dungeons and Dragons, the the books, the, the, the tabletop role-playing game, the video games, everything. You know, it's been around for such a long time. Doing it as a movie, where do you start? And I think that they seem to be going a bit more comedically with it as opposed to the last theatrical Dungeons and Dragons movie, which is the first one, which was overly serious. Well, it was uh, overly it, serious except when the dwarf or Damon Wayans was on screen. The, Keenan Ivory Wayans. Which one was it? It was Damon, wasn't it? Marlon. Marlon Wayans. Marlon. Marlon. So many Wayans. But yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. I mean, so I think so. it's kind of tongue-in-cheek that the main characters are thieves or something. That Michelle Rodriguez is in there is kind of funny because it makes me think of her in the Uwe Boll movie, Blood Brain. Oh, yeah. A similar kind of medieval setting with her with the sword and stuff. And uh, that trailer has gotten like several million views already. I'm kind of surprised. I don't know if it's because of the, because it's the cast. uh, I don't know. Like they filmed that around the same time as the new Indiana Jones movie Mm. in in, um, Ireland, I think. So Okay. And I, I will give an impre- my, my impression of the trailer, because I saw it too, is that one, uh, they definitely aren't embarrassed by the source material, as I felt the first theatrical film kind Yeah, of yeah was. you're getting the, the creatures like Gelatinous Cube, you're getting owl bears. Um, this is a red of wizard of Thay in the trailer. Yep, yep. A lot of although, unique al- uh, things. Although, that being said, um, I suspect their inclusion is less about sort of a fondness for the source material or a desire to use the source material so much as those are all the easily brandable things that Wizards of the Coast uses to build brand synergy with Dungeons and Dragons tie-in merchandise. Mm-hmm. So it's not yeah, necessarily I, a I, good sign that we're seeing those things. And we'll have to see. I, I wonder if it's going to set itself up for a sequel that never happens. Like we have <laughs> that first Dungeons and Dragons movie. That's what I'm sort of thinking, but Hopefully it doesn't lean so much on the exposition. Alex, you thought this was sort of a funny trailer? Yeah, no, I was, I was interested because um, there was a Dungeons & Dragons movie in like 2015, right? Uh, no, in 2000. Video. Oh yeah, direct-to-video there was one. Well, there was the original and there were two sequels. The first sequel was, I believe, a Sci-Fi Channel original, and then the second sequel was just straight-to-DVD. Oh, what was I thinking of? There was another fantasy film that came out like right in 2015. Um, ah, I can't. Oh, it's World of Warcraft. <laughs> ah, that's what. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep, Warcraft. 
So what about the Warcraft connection? What made you think about that when you saw this trailer? Oh, I don't know. I think I just I just balled all of my fan, I, fantasy together. Well, the thing I thought was funny was that I was wondering if they were sitting on this and waiting for Game of Thrones fever to die out. <laughs> because um, I really think that was like yeah. something that really put a lot of like other fantasy and, you know, um, fantasy and like medieval kind of movies on the back burner because I think there was just so much. Everyone was just so dialed into um Game of Thrones, like, I remember um, Justin Kurtzel's 2015's uh, Macbeth, which I thought was a great film. I don't think got any attention because I think people were just worn out on, like, you know, intense PTSD, you know, dudes smashing each other with axes and swords and shit. Yeah, and Macbeth has been done a lot of different times, too. Oh, yeah. Some sort of uh, malaise with that. I'm not really sure. I mean, even the, uh, are you talking about the Denzel Washington one? No, the one from 2015 with uh, Bapadur Michael oh. Fassbender. Oh, that one. Yeah. I didn't even know that one existed. Right. Yeah, so, it, yeah it's it, pretty great, too. Oh, I'll have to check that out. I do like I do like a good Macbeth, and I especially like the Kurosawa Throne of Blood version. Oh, um, hell yeah. This is like the PTSD Macbeth. Okay. Yeah, yeah. this is like intense, fucking sweaty, bloody, muddy, blah. The, the second sort of tra- uh, trailer I saw that, that gave me pause was for a, a TV show. Uh, I've been waiting for it for a long time, and uh, it's it was a, a extended trailer for the Interview with the Vampire TV show that comes to AMC this October. And um, and Rice was still alive when they sold the rights to AMC. AMC bought the rights to do TV shows based off of all the vampire books and oh, the cool. three um, witching hour books, and they're in production on series. Uh, you have the interview series, and right now that just did one season's coming out, and then the Witching Hour they filmed as well, uh, one season of. And whether those all get other seasons, I don't know. But I guess an article came out their plans are to have maybe six different Anne Rice series on TV simultaneously. Oh Ooh. wow, that's a right. lot. It, yeah, and to do crossovers and do their own original story with all this crossover IP, and. At first, I thought that's bad. I still think it's bad. However, with the vampire books in particular, Anne Rice did a lot of these one-off books that kind of told the backstory of these different vampires that were in that first, uh, the first two interview with the vampire books. So, I you mean, could like do this, it, but <sighs> yeah, it's trying to make it. It's like you're trying to force something into a hit, like making them drink from the fire hose. You will like these five tie-in series. It becomes like Disney right. Plus at that point. I know. Well, that's the thing, too, is that, like, I, you know, I'm not, like, um, MCU completist, and I think it was, like, by 2017 is when I kind of just began to check out just because of just because of oversaturation. And it was the same thing with Star Wars. I mean, once, like, we yeah, hit, yeah. like, Solo, I'm kind of like, oh, uh, uh. and then it's, like, before this Anne Rice thing even happens, I'm burnt out on just hearing about it, you know what I mean? Like, is this going to be another right. extended universe? Is there going to do I have to watch the shows first? Are there going to be prequels, sequels, sequels? Like, I yeah, they're not know. even getting through the whole book in the first season. Which, on the one hand, a lot happens in that first book, but um, right. Uh, interestingly, when people have tried to reach out to Christopher Rice, the son of uh, Anne Rice, uh, who Anne Rice died recently, um, they asking him about the show. His response is, "Please direct all questions to AMC." <laughs> oh. That does but not like the most, 
No, because at one point he was involved with writing the scripts, and it would have the first episode would have started with Lestat in, in France as a human fighting the wolves, which is from uh, Vampire Lestat, the second book. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, who knows? I mean, they've been trying to get this done as a TV series for a long time with Hulu, with all these other people that just wouldn't quite bite on it. That makes me, uh, that gives me even more trepidation. And it also, you know, it's like when the people talk to like Trey Parker, Matt Stone about like South Park merchandise, like that's Comedy Central, that's not us. And the fact that mm. they're not even comfortable saying what the network is doing wrong, they're just saying ask the network, it, it kind of yeah. to how much control the network is exercising over the material that the creators are afraid to imply how much they fucked it up. <laughs> I do wonder if you're going to see more, you know, Anne Rice books in those vampire series just done by her son or whatever, because right, the last yeah. few books she co-wrote with her son, not in the vampire series, but she did an old book called The Mummy and they did a few sequels together. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. If this stuff will flop or whatever, uh, I have no idea. But it's, um, yeah, just learning, seeing that headline, I just felt kind of the bile go up in my mouth. And then I saw right. like the, the big image for Marvel Phase 4 that made me even more nauseous. So It's exhausting. It is exhausting and not, not in a good way. I think you want to space things out. If you have chocolate every day, you start to not like chocolate. Right. It just gets old. Flaming y'all again, mom. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I couldn't possibly have another caviar. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Thrasher looks like you got a scene for us to read. Uh, yes, I have found a sequel scene. So this is the scene where all the nerds are uh, smoking their unnamed marijuana in comically large palm leaf uh, joints around a fire at night, and ogres there too, and they're just kind of. You know, having one of those pseudo-philosophical conversations you often have in a group while high. And right, we, have, uh, we, yeah, we have all, we have uh, Poindexter, uh, Wormser, uh, Ogre, and and Her- and Stewart. Uh, I would like to do Ogre and Stewart just because they have the fewest lines. Okay. Um... Who's left Harold and, and Poindexter? Yeah. I'll do... I'll do Harold, because I don't know what voice I want to do yet. Okay, I'll do Poindexter. And you'll do the, the um, screen direction, Slasher? Yes. Okay. Uh, okay, let's start. So, uh, what you're essentially uh, saying is, along uh, with the infinite space, uh, extends beyond perpetual bigness, there's also infinite smallness. Harold Wormser nods head in agreement. How? Easy. Take an asymptomatic line and extend it outward. Uh, ow! Right, right. So, so perpetual bigness exists simultaneously with perpetual smallness. What was I thinking? Uh, what if uh, C-A-T really spelled dog? Wow. God. Yeah. That's heavy, ogre. Dog. Yeah, I'm going to say, we just killed it, man. That was, that was great. 
Yeah, very good. And uh, Ogre seems like a character that should cross over into Beavis and Butthead, I think. Right. He would, he would fit. Or he should just, that actor should be in a Mike Judge uh, sitcom or something. Oh, definitely. There's something about the, you look at the guy and you kind of get it, but then when you start speaking, it's just slightly something else. It's, um, he was on a lot of these, uh, I think it was Capital One Visa commercials or something for a while as a Viking not that long ago. The actor that played Ogre. For, and, for some um, reason while watching this, I felt like the actor who played Ogre was like, would do like a lot of conventions and be like, you know, meet Ogre. He does. Yeah, he does. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. I don't, I'm sure I've been at conventions where he's been at. I don't think I've sought out his table. I, I don't pay for, well, yeah, no, I don't pay for autographs. I have waited in line to shake people's hands and just sort of say thank you for entertain for years of entertainment or whatever. Right, but, right. But it's, um, yeah, we'll have to see, and I'll be, uh, see how all that goes. So, yeah, next week, we will be looking at the Revenge of the Nerds TV pilot. It only appeared on the uh, the DVD, that uh, Panty Raid edition of Revenge of the Nerds that came out. It's uh, less than 20 minutes, but it's worth its own episode, I think, just because it's so odd. And it's a good example of <laughs> you take an R-rated movie, you dumb it down into a network sitcom. And um, it has one of the worst theme songs I've ever seen. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, yes. <laughs> It'll be time to do the nerd attack. You know what that means when you see the. It, oh, it's the boy. kind of theme song where the cast starts singing with it on camera. Oh wow! <laughs> we'll have so, to, and we, we alone will determine. Was it canceled too soon? No, that's a different podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, that's a good one though. I do like canceled too soon. Oh yeah. They um, fought. They just did the secret diary of Desmond Pfeiffer, which is one of the ah! whales. Oh, they did. Okay, okay, that's great. The P is inside. Check, check that out. Check that out, never got a DVD release, did it? Pardon? That never got a DVD release, did it? No, they, I don't know how they yeah. got it, but they got it. Um, yeah. And, uh, the, uh, but like YouTube or something, I don't know. Yeah, but, but listen to, like, you know, de- definitely, you know, listen to an episode of Cancel Too Soon, but then immediately listen to five episodes of Sequel Cast 2. Uh, and also <laughs> like and subscribe. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, all, all the verbs. Um, so you can uh, follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. Follow the show on, on Twitter at SequelCast2. You can get episodes from SequelCast2.com. We are part of the HyperX network. Uh, it's purveyor of all kinds of great podcasts like uh, Retronauts and all kinds of other things I don't have off the top of my head right now. But, they, you know, there's really been growing a lot. There's a lot of different shows on there. So check that out on your Googles, um, Thrasher. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at at WT2Art. Uh, also, again, I will be running live-action role-playing events at Gen Con uh, under the banner of Kettle of Fish Productions. So if you're going to be at Gen Con uh, 2022, uh, you, you, hey, you could meet one of the hosts of Sequel Cast in person. Uh, I'm assuming this episode's going to come out before the convention. Uh, if it comes out after the convention, hey, how'd you enjoy all those events I did at Gen Con? Likely be after. Uh, Alex? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CrabNebula1914 and drop by my YouTube channel, The Trailer Project. I uh, recently uploaded a trailer commentary for Olivier Assayas' Irma Vep, which is also being remade by Assayas himself as a... Um, as a HBO miniseries with Alicia Vikander, which uh, two episodes in, it's quite good. Hey, oh. what if Irma Vip was an anagram for vampire? That's too far out, man. That's crazy. <laughs> Next thing you're going to be telling me, Kubrick staged the moon landing. <laughs> Kubrick. Why hasn't there been a movie about that? That'd be sort of... There, there was. Room 237 kind of is. Really? Well, what... No, there, there, no, there was a comedy released a few years ago. I think. Uh, oh, Operation oh. Avalanche. No, no, there was another one. It was, it was called like Moon Boys or Moonshot. It was a comedy about oh, okay. about a CIA operative trying to recruit Kubrick to fake the moon landing, and and mm-hmm. having to deal with Kubrick as a director. There is um, a found footage kind of caper film called Operation Avalanche, which is about like a renegade. Um, studio shooting the moon uh, footage. It's it's interesting. It's not perfect, but it is an interesting oh. flick. Oh, here it is. Here it is. It's it's Moonwalkers. Ron Perlman plays the CIA agent, and Rupert Grint plays a young Stanley Kubrick. Oh no okay. shit! I thought when you were saying Kubrick, it was reminded me of there's a, a film. Yep, there's a poster. Uh, there's a film called uh, Color Me Kubrick from a while ago with uh, oh with John Malkovich. John Malkovich, where he yeah. it's based on a true story where he plays a guy that impersonated stanley kubrick because kubrick got so kind of press shy in his later years this guy claimed he was stanley kubrick and no one was the wiser so he got to go to all these parties and things yeah it was one of those like had a lot of fraud yeah it's um and it does very funny things like do uh it uses cues from kubrick films as the guy's doing his laundry like it's just (laughs) kind of a a witty little kind of budget comedy. So, all right, well, there you go. So, next time on Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, we'll be looking at Revenge of the Nerds 3, the next generation. This Where is one of the E. Actually, no, I lied. We were going to do the pilot, but after that, we're going to do yeah, Revenge the of the Nerds 3. So, nice. very good. Nice. So, for Sequel Cast 2, uh, this is Matt. This is Thrasher. This is Alex. Saying, we want to hear a brother speak. Breaker, breaker, we've got nerds, emergency nerds. They're coming out of their ship. I see long, green, nerdy tentacles. Did you remember to bring your nerds? Did you remember to bring your prophylactics? Yeah, I know you're the most popular man on campus. Ooh, ooh, ooh.